At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. I, Brian Kemp, do solemnly swear or affirm do solemnly swear that I will The second term of Republican Governor Brian Kemp has officially begun. Instead of catering to the talk shows or what is popular on the cocktail circuit, this administration and the leadership in the General Assembly are going to put you and your families first. Kemp swore his oath with the Capitol's gold dome peeking out from the windows behind him. He placed his hand on a Bible open to Proverbs 16:7. When the Lord is pleased with a man and his ways, the scripture says, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. It's week two of the Georgia General Assembly, and this is the Gold Dome Scramble, a pop-up podcast from Political Breakfast. I'm Susanna Capaluto, politics editor at WABE, and with me are politics reporters Rahul Bali and Sam Greenglass. Hey there. Hello. Hello. Let's start with that big inauguration ceremony. It was at Georgia State University in the Convocation Center. One by one, all the state constitutional officers were sworn in, and then Kemp gave his big speech. What did we learn about how Kemp sees himself in this political universe and what does he want to do with all the power he's now accumulated? I mean, I think we can start by just talking about that cut of tape that we played at the top, you know, where he's talking about not listening to the cocktail circuit or the cable news and doing what's right for George's families. This matches with the profile that he's really tried to cut over the last couple of years through his re-election campaign, and now as he's taking on his second term. You know, this person who doesn't listen to the backlash from liberals, especially from outside the state of Georgia. I mean, think to the dust-up over the Major League Baseball All-Stars game being pulled out of Atlanta over the voting law. This is something he talked about standing up against on the campaign trail. And he's also been willing to buck the Trump crowd, the Fox News crowd, uh, who may have been pontificating over Kemp's unwillingness to help Trump in his crusade to overturn the election. And I think this profile as someone who can kind of move between these worlds, who doesn't take BS from any side of the political equation, is what really helped him get to re-election in some ways, being able to capture these moderate, independent, suburban swing voters that everyone talks about so much. And I think if we look ahead to a political future for Kemp. Those are exactly the kind of people that he's going to be arguing he can uniquely capture. And I think this really means that Governor Kemp is going to stick with the formula that got him here. Tax cuts, rebates, you know, large economic development announcements, and then mixing in social issues that, that are going to work for him. I think he's just going to stick with that formula. Now, could there be some other areas that he starts going into or shifts a position on? It's possible. 
But from where I'm sitting, it just looks like he's going to stick with the formula that got him here. So do you think there is an appetite, you know, for that political brand of socially conservative, business friendly, non-Trump conforming Republican like Kemp outside of Georgia? And how much do you think Kemp cares about that national platform he's gaining? I mean, look, I think he does care about that platform for a couple of reasons. First of all, he's got that pack that is raising money. You know, you know, Sam mentioned Fox News, but you see the governor appear on Fox News and you're probably going to see the governor appear on a CNBC. You're going to see the governor appear at Davos. You, you know, so, yeah, he cares about that national platform, but you still have to look. Georgia is politically still a 50-50 state. It's a state with all Republican statewide officials and two Democratic U.S. senators. So it's this balance you almost see, again, sticking with the formula that got him here in a state that's so close. Yeah. And on Tuesday, as Raul mentioned, Kemp is heading overseas to Davos, the World Economic Forum. It's this big conference every year in Switzerland that attracts big business executives and government leaders from all over the world. And he's going to be on a panel of governors alongside another star governor, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, my home state governor, someone else who has been nodded at as a future presidential contender, potentially. And I think that gets at this moment where there is this increased focus on governors. Uh, They've had to deal with a lot in the last couple of years from the pandemic to the contentious 2020 election. This is something that Kemp referred to specifically in his inaugural address that his first term has been one of facing many once-in-a-lifetime challenges. The other thing I'll note is I think this question that we're asking about whether there is desire for this political brand that Kemp is cutting outside of Georgia, I think we'll have a better answer to that once we get to the primaries for the 2024 presidential election. Whether Kemp is in that race or not, he's not going to be. But there might be other candidates like Kemp who are vying for that same piece of the electorate. I'm thinking, you know, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, a Republican. Will someone like that win out in a Republican primary? Or do Republicans end up with uh, Donald Trump again? Or someone along similar lines like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida? So we are through the first week of this legislative session. The new members have found their desks and the bathroom, and Kemp has given us a bit of a preview of what we can expect from him. With this inaugural address and his speech at the big annual business brunch that's called Eggs and Issues, what did we learn? So we still do have a lot of holes that we're not sure exactly what the agenda looks like, but there are a few things that are starting to come into relief. One thing out of eggs and issues that came up a bunch from pretty much every speaker who took the stage, including Governor Kemp, was the need to attract more workers to fill all these jobs that are available in Georgia. And along with that, finding affordable housing for them to live in. So that's one thing we expect some movement on this session. Kemp, in his inaugural address, announced that he wants to approve $2,000 pay bumps for state employees, including teachers and law enforcement that work for the state. We know he's been talking about tax relief in the form of income tax refund and property taxes. And the other thing that stuck out to both Raul and I of his speech is Kemp says by the end of his term, he wants Georgia to be the electric mobility capital of the country. And as I've covered over the last year or so since that Rivian electric truck announcement. There are a lot of states vying for that same role. So that will be a very active push 
as uh, you know, Georgia tries to recruit some of these electric vehicle startups and expansions. One other thing I want to mention here is what we did not hear from Kemp over this last week, and that was pretty much any mention of some of these social issues like abortion or guns that really captivated a lot of the last legislative session. I want to talk about those two issues, housing and EVs, and what that legislation could look like up here. First of all, one of the big things that has jumped out at me in the conversations I'm having here around the state capitol is this idea of what to do about housing developments of single-family homes that are all for rent, these whole neighborhoods of homes that are just for rent, along with corporations going in and buying homes and turning around and renting those homes out, you know, and the challenges that may be causing. Is that a solution for the housing issues like around the Rivian plant in the Lake Oconee area or the Hyundai plant that will be built down in South Georgia, you know, to have these rental neighborhoods? And then over on EVs, again, what does that all mean? One of those conversations is if you own an EV in the state of Georgia, you have to pay a $200 fee and it's meant to offset, you know, what you don't pay in gas tax. Well, you know, there are EV drivers who who really don't like that. One of the conversations up here is pay by how many miles we drive every year. That could be very interesting. And then also the return of the state tax credit for buying an EV, which used to be, if I remember right, $5,000. Right now, there's a $7,500 credit on the federal taxes. There's a conversation up here at the state capitol bringing back the state tax credit for buying a new EV. Well, let's pause here. I'm Susanna Capaluto, and this is the Gold Dome Scramble. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We are back and we are looking at the week ahead, uh, which is called Budget Week. The budget is super important and also kind of wonky. So let's get up to speed with a little Budget 101. And to do that, we're going to bring in James Salzer, who has covered state budget for the AJC since a Democrat was governor. And I am not talking about Roy Barnes. Welcome, James. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So is it true that the General Assembly's one job to do really is pass a budget every year? Yeah, constitutionally, that's all. I mean, they have to uh, gavel in and gavel out. But other than that, uh, passing a budget is the one thing they have to do every year. And they get only 40 days. That's constitutionally set. They can't go on. 40 work days. But reality is they take time off, you know, in between. And it's... It's actually probably closer to 75 or 80 days uh, if you figure in, you know, 
working on the weekend. If it, budgets in 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 the in the olden times in the '90s and the 2000s, they would frequently take four or five days off and you know work over the weekend to do the budget. So, but 40 days is the is the uh, the, the number they count. So can you talk about who actually kicks things off here? You know, for the last couple of days, we have heard Governor Kemp talking about all these priorities that he wants funding for in this budget. But as you've just mentioned, it's the legislature that holds the power of the purse. So exactly what's the order of operations here? The governor starts meeting with agency heads over the fall and develops a budget proposal that he announces in the first week of the session. He, Governor Kemp really hasn't announced all that much. I mean, we, we've written about the pay raises and the, the rebates, but which he'd previously mentioned uh, on the campaign trail. But he hasn't really, you know, detailed, a, a state budget is four or 500 pages long, so there's a lot of things that, you know, we don't know yet. But so he'll release his budget proposal today, and then uh, next week there'll be uh, legislative hearings on the budget proposal. And that goes on, you know, it goes to the House first, then it goes to the Senate. Both chambers pass uh, different versions of, of the budget, and then they negotiate. Generally, I would say probably 90 to 95% of what the governor re- uh, proposes winds up in the budget. So we are not like, um, say, California, where the governor gives a budget and then the legislature throws it out and does its own, or like in D.C., right? No, it's nothing like that. It's... It's hard to compare, like, to D.C. because this isn't a split government. This is, it, it always has had either Democratic governor and, and Democratic Senate in the House or Republican governor and Republican Senate in the House. So, in general, here, the governor has so much political power. Uh, he can veto bills. He can veto what the House and the Senate put in the budget that they generally go along with his priorities. There's examples where they don't, but by and large, that's what happens. I want to talk about the money in the state budget. So it's a roughly, when it comes to state money, about $30 billion. Where does most of that $30 billion come from? And kind of where does most of it go? What are kind of the big, big inputs and the big outputs when it comes to the state budget? Most of the state revenue comes from income and sales tax. 60 to 70 percent come from that. And then and then uh, the fuel tax, which they cut off uh, last year uh, and, and just went back on this week, is also a, a sizable pot of money. But that is kind of targeted to the Department of Transportation and road and transportation projects. So it's not really money that like in, in general the, that the legislature can go say we're going to give it to education or we're going to give it to something else. So the two big pots are income and, and sales tax. And the biggest areas uh, in the budget are education, K-12 education, university system, education, the college system, community health, which provides uh, health care to the poor and disabled and uh, supplies over a billion dollars a year, for instance, to house uh, the elderly in nursing homes. So those are the, the big areas. But, you know, as you know, there's 20 or 30 other departments and areas from natural resources to the state patrol to the prison uh, system that get, uh, you know, a good chunk of money. And um, as of this recording, um, we don't have the state budget yet, but we know that we have a big surplus right now. I think about what, $6.6 billion. So why do we have that? And do they have to spend it all? So we have it largely because 
the big areas, sales tax and income tax collections have have really really took off in the in the months after the COVID nineteen shutdown and haven't stopped. Now some of that is because of inflation, because because goods cost more, the the taxes are higher in those on those because it's a percentage of the sale. So sales tax have gone up in part because of inflation. Income taxes have gone up because people are earning more. Uh, in the, the first year after the COVID, a big boost in terms of revenue was that the federal government was supplying a lot of money, for instance, unemployment money to those who were out of work that they normally wouldn't, the state wouldn't normally see. So they're seeing taxes on that. But the revenue side has just continued to grow. In fact, it's still growing even after a $6.6 billion um, surplus, still growing. About half of the money is already uh, dedicated uh, from, from last year's surplus uh, to the tax uh, rebates that, that Governor Kemp is proposing. And then uh, some of the money, probably a million, million and a half, will go to the Department of Transportation to make up for the fact that they froze the, the gas tax. Um, then there's a certain percentage of that that will go into the state savings account, rainy day account. They don't have to allocate it at all this session, for instance, or, or, you know, he doesn't have to spend it all this session. If last year was any indication, uh, the Office of Planning and Budget is probably trying to find places to save the money. They'd rather save it, a lot of it, than spend it. I always had thought the rainy day fund was kind of full. It is, but at the end of the fiscal year, statutorily, it can go up to 15% of, of revenue. For instance, the state budget or state revenue goes up that means the, the ceiling on the rainy day fund goes up. So that's where the money goes. James, during the campaign for governor, one of the biggest points of conflict between Governor Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams was how to spend the surplus that Georgia has, how to wield this budget. And of course, Republicans have all of the power here as this budget is being made up. But I wonder, are there points of conflict that Democrats will bristle about how this budget is being put together? I'm thinking, you know, not using some of the surplus to expand Medicaid fully, for example. They usually bring that up when the budget gets to the House floor or the Senate floor. There'll be uh, there'll be probably the majority, or excuse me, the minority leader will get up and discuss that. And and Medicaid expansion is brought up every year by Democrats. It's not going to happen. So it, I mean, it's not going to happen at least under this administration or this uh, legislature, probably. But yeah, there there is kind of a loyal opposition and Democrats generally will say, you know, these are our priorities, but realistically, there's not a a ton that they can do about stopping uh, governor's priorities and the majority's priorities. So we've said that this is budget week and and I wanted to tell our audience where I'm sitting. I'm sitting uh, in the state capitol in one of these large, beautiful hearing rooms. And this room actually uh, by some is called the appropriations room. It's part of where James and I and, and other reporters are going to spend part of our life next week. James, talk about what's going to happen here in the appropriations room here in the state capitol. So next week, the House and Senate is a joint meeting of the House and Senate budget committees, essentially. Both in the, that room and area around it, the halls outside are crowded because every agency has interest in what the legislature obviously does when it comes to spending. 
And um, those interests, all, there also are lobbyists who have interest in, in what is going into the state budget, quite a few, actually. So that room will be full of, of people, and essentially they go by agency, and they bring agency heads up, and, and, uh, and the agency uh, directors will say, this is what you know, the governor is proposing, and they'll answer questions. I do like the fact that the leadership this time, it looks like to me, based on the schedule, the amount of time that they're giving department heads, they're not going to have them read every line item. They used to get up and just read you know, pages, if it was a big agency, big pages of line items of, you know, the governor wants this amount of money for X. I, I assume everyone in the General Assembly can read, so they don't really need that. I think next week will be a little bit more interesting because there'll be more questioning of, of spending and, and, you know, fact-finding as opposed to just reading the budget. And one of the traditional first speakers actually is the governor, though my understanding is the governor is going to be zooming in from Davos, but uh, he's one of the traditional first speakers, isn't he? Yeah, and this because he didn't do a state of the state, uh, which is a traditional uh, event that is held the first week where you kind of outline your budget, he hasn't really done that. So this, he may actually, you know, kind of discuss what was in his, what's in his budget a little bit more than traditionally. Traditionally, governors will get up and say, the economy, it's always good if you're a governor. Um, you always got to say that and talk in more generalities. But he may actually talk more about, you know, things that are in the budget. Well, James Seltzer of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's been great having you. I'll see you next week in here. Thanks, James. I learned a lot. Thank you. Gold Dome Scramble is a production of the WABE Politics Desk. Our podcast producer is Kevin Rinker. You can also listen to our Mothership podcast, Political Breakfast with Lisa Ram. It drops every Wednesday morning. I'm Susanna Capaluto. Have a great week. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.